on this episode of Never Surrender. You get out there to Hollywood and you get into these exactly. studios and they are not feeling you. Oh, the rejections were unbelievable. I, I was almost booted out of offices. I was told time and time again, this is the worst idea we've ever heard. Anybody who gets rejected constantly like that, especially over 10 years, has got to question, you know, what they're doing. So what motivated you to keep going and what prevented you from giving up? Well, it does test your mettle as a human being. It does. Uh, I mean, everybody telling you you suck and your idea stinks and you have to think hard about it. Is everybody right and I'm really just being stubborn or do I really, really believe in this and in myself for that matter? I'm Jack Hergeth. And I'm Stephen Kramer Glickman. And this is Never Surrender. The show where we sit down with the most successful people in the entertainment industry to talk about failure and how they pushed through it and never gave up. Because we've all failed. We've all had setbacks. Yeah, we've all questioned whether to keep going. But at some point, everybody struggles. Yeah, I mean, I've been let go from some of my favorite jobs. You and me both. We just hope that by listening to this podcast, it will help give you the strength to never surrender. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. If you're a fan of Batman, then you are going to love today's guest. Oh my God, I'm so excited this guy's on the show because I love Batman from when I was a kid. I read all the comic books. I watched the original TV show. I watched all the movies. I'll tell you this, man. Without our next guest, all of those Batman movies would not exist. He has produced every modern Batman-related feature, starting with the 1989 Tim Burton Batman movie to the eagerly awaited upcoming film, The Batman, starring... Robert Pattinson. But Stephen, did you know that he's also the producer behind films and TV shows like National Treasure, Constantine, and Swamp Thing? Oh, I love Swamp Thing. But honestly, I, I gotta say, this guy has had the door slammed in his face more than anybody I've ever known. People telling him that his ideas were stupid, that it was idiotic, but I'll tell you what, folks, he persisted and he never gave up. And thank God for that, we have Batman. <laughs> This is Michael Uslan. Today we're chatting with Michael Uslan, and it is such an honor to have you, buddy. This is this is so cool. I am really happy to be here with you, talking to fellow geeks, uh, which is always a pleasure for me. Your uh, career is absolutely extraordinary, uh, and for for people uh, who are are not familiar with you, they're definitely familiar with your work. Um, you have produced basically every Batman related film or television show since uh, eighty nine. Eighty nine, right? correct? 
Slight correction. Uh, slight correction. So um, I have been the originator and the executive producer of every movie since 1989, plus all of the animated movies that we've done as well. Uh, regarding the stuff that goes on TV, whether it's called Gotham, Pennyworth, or the Utility Belt, the limited series, um, I am not involved in those. Oh, interesting. Got it. That's amazing. Um, well, you've said that you were very passionate about comic books when you were growing up as a kid. You know, what made you fall in love with comic books so much at that age? Because I sucked at sports. <laughs> I, ha I have an older brother, Paul, who was the sports superstar feared in the Pee Wee League baseball uh, uh, arena we were in growing up. He was the top basketball player. He was the football quarterback. Um, and I would go out and uh, in between striking out, uh, you know, I'd pretty much try to find a place in right field to sit down and have a creamsicle. So, um, <laughs> you know, that wasn't working out for me. I was not a happy kid being forced by my mom to uh, play team sports, uh, especially when it came to choosing up sides. And I'd always be the fourth to last or third to last uh, that was picked. So... I had to find something else, and I turned away from all of that and found myself a treehouse that my dad built and would read my stacks of comic books up there. So I got to hang out with real great guys, uh, Superman and Batman and Aquaman and later on Spider-Man and the Fantastic Four. And that became the world – that became my world, really. And that's how it all actually started. Yet my mom said I learned to read before I was four years old from comic books. So I was, I was into this at an early age, really thanks to my older brother who brought them into the house. And, uh, and, and that was when everything really clicked uh, to the point, guys. By the time I graduated high school... I already had over 30,000 comic books dating back to 1936. You had 30,000 comic books? Uh, when I was, by the time I was 18. Yeah, oh, older my than that God. That's amazing. Wow. Oh that my is crazy. God. And, and why, why Batman? What, what about Batman spoke to you over uh, other you know, characters in DC and Marvel? Well, the first encounter I remember with Batman happened when I must have been about five years old. Um, my dad had given my brother 25 cents, a quarter and a nickel. And he sent us to the candy store in Bayonne when we were visiting our grandparents and said, go get some comic books, take your brother. And I remember he said to me, all right, three would be his and I could pick out two. And then the entire wall floor to ceiling was covered with comic books. And... Paul put me up on his shoulders so I could reach the top. And that's where I remember seeing my first Batman cover. It was Detective Comics. And it was a tank, assault tank version of a Batmobile. Whoa. And it was dark and it was scary. And at age five, it was a little too scary. And I retreated. And the two I picked out instead was Sugar and Spike. Um, which was a great comic book <clears throat> and an issue with Superman because Superman was on TV and I knew him from TV and I felt safe when I was five years old reading Superman. It would not be until I was a far more mature and sophisticated eight years old 
<laughs> that I would move up to Batman and realize that all these other superheroes I was reading have superpowers. This guy does not. I could be this guy. I, I so identified with this character starting at age eight uh, to the point, and I think we talked about this at San Diego, where I did believe when I was eight years old that if I studied hard and my and I worked out real hard, and if my pop bought me a really cool car, I could be this guy. And, um, and that was the magic of Batman for me, which expanded to the fact that he always had the greatest, most interesting and colorful villains. And well, then, of course, the car. Yeah, well, I mean that it makes so much sense. And then for for 1966 to roll around the and the the Batman TV show to come out, I'm sure as a kid, no hearing that a Batman television show was going to come out must have been exciting for you. It was beyond exciting. You've got to remember that growing up, the only shows that were on TV ever based on a comic book were Superman, which lasted a long time, and Sheena, Queen of the Jungle which kind of was in and then it was out. And that was it. It was a barren landscape. When I was growing up, I tuned to anything that in any way, shape, or form had a guy in a mask that resembled anything like a superhero. So I was a total Lone Ranger freak. And I was a complete obsessed Zorro guy from Walt Disney Zorro. And that was, that was the landscape. So now Batman's coming on. I, it must have been six months that I was filled with anticipation. I would cut out every article about it, uh, any kind of picture, a sneak peek at what Batman might look like. And then there was that cold January night in 1966. I'll never forget it. I was downstairs in our basement den, and I was waiting, and here it comes. And my God, it's in color. And... (laughs) That opening animation, that's cool. That kind of looks like Bob Kane, Jerry Robinson, you know, kind of art. And, oh, somebody's spending a lot of money on these sets. And, wow, the Batmobile looks cool. And then, 20 minutes in, an epiphany. Oh, my God, this is a comedy. They're making a joke out of Batman. The whole world is laughing at Batman. And that just killed me because by then I was already a hardcore fanboy. I had already met Bob Kane, Bill Finger. Um, I knew the whole history of Batman. I had in my collection, my collection went back at that time to Detective Comics number 45 and Batman number one. And, and, and I knew all about the Dark Knight created in 1939 by Bill and Bob Uh, who were stalking these deeply disturbed villains in the shadows. And that was when I made my vow. And I'm downstairs in our den, and I make a vow like young Bruce Wayne, once upon a time, made a vow. And, uh, I mean, he made his vow over the slaughtered, bloody bodies of his parents in the street. My parents were safe upstairs in the kitchen. Um, (laughs) You made your vow over uh, Frank Gorshin and Cesar Romero, right? uh, Yeah, it was – yeah, that's a really good way to put it. That is a really good way to put it. Um, I want to – if I remember correctly, that first episode was Frank Gorshin. And um, I said, somehow, someday – some way, I am going to show the world the true Batman, the one that these guys originally created. 
And I'm going to find some way to erase from the collective consciousness of the world culture these three awful new words, pow, zap, and wham. <laughs> and th that became the what I thought was going to be maybe a career goal and ultimately uh, turned out to be a life goal. Wow. Oh, my God. That's it's just extraordinary. And now then then I know like after you get out of high school, you go off to Indiana University and um, at Indiana University, you you were taking at this point, you're taking comic books very, very seriously. Now you have this massive collection and um, walk us through creating the first comic book course, because that is this is an extraordinary tale of how this how this worked out it, it is uh, it's an interesting story since i was 8 i dreamed of one day writing batman comics since that night in 66 i dreamed of showing the world the true dark and serious batman in movies but how do you get there from here uh you're talking to a kid who is a jersey boy a blue collar jersey boy my father was a stonemason. My mom was a bookkeeper. I did not come from money. I could not buy my way into Hollywood. I didn't know anyone in Hollywood. I had no relatives in Hollywood. So how do you get there from here? And my first opportunity came at Indiana University in Bloomington. And uh, the way I always describe it is uh, it was the early 1970s and a time of great experimentation on college campuses. And I always refuse to comment further on that. Um, <laughs> that said, in response to those times, the College of Arts and Sciences started an experimental curriculum department. And they said, if you have an idea for a college course that has never been taught before, and if you have the backing of a department on campus, you then may appear before a panel of deans and professors and pitch your course. If the dean accepts it, then even though, for me, I was a junior at the time, even though you're an undergraduate, you still have the right to teach your course for three hours of credit per semester. And I saw this as the first place maybe I could put my foot in the door and do something with my comic books. So armed with a pile of Superman and Batman comics, I went into pitch and the dean takes one look at me as I walk in the room, and he goes, so you're the kid who wants to teach a course on funny books at my university? And I knew I was in deep sh uh, trouble. <laughs> and so I began the first pitch of my career. The dean lets me speak for two minutes flat and cuts me off. He says, Mr. Uslin, oh, come on. He goes, Really? I read comic books when I was a little boy. I read every issue of Superman I could get my hands on. He says, but all comic books are are cheap entertainment for little kids. Nothing more, nothing less. And I reject your theory. Well, that was This, guys, was a, a life-changing moment for me because wow. I could have bowed my head, picked up my funny books, and turned around and left the room. But instead, figuring I had absolutely nothing to lose. I said to the dean, may I ask you just two questions? He said, ask me anything you want. I said, are you familiar with the story of Moses? And he looked at me like I was nuts. He goes, yeah, so? I go, so dean, very, very briefly, could you just summarize the story of Moses? 
And he folded his arms and sat back in the chair and he said, Mr. Uslan, I don't know what game you're playing here, um, but I'll, I'll play this with you. He said the Hebrew people were being persecuted. Their firstborn were being slain. A Hebrew couple placed their infant son in a little wicker basket and send him down the River Nile. There he's discovered by an Egyptian family who raised him as their own son. When he grew up and learned of his true heritage, he became a great hero to his people by a go, stop. Dean, thank you. That was terrific. You said before you read Superman comics when you were a kid. By any chance, do you recall the origin of Superman? He said, of course, the planet Krypton was going to blow up. A scientist and his wife place their infant son in a little rocket ship and send him to Earth. There he's discovered by the Kents, who raise him as their own son. When he grows up, and with that, the dean stops, stares at me for what I swear was an eternity, and says, <laughs> your course is accredited. Wow. And that was it. Wow, that's amazing. Oh, my God. That must have been... that. What did that feel like for you in that moment, knowing that you had not surrendered and you had gone to bat for something that you believed in, and and now you're suddenly going to get to teach it? What, what did that feel like? Besides the elation, then there was the sense of almost the con. Oh, my God, I pulled this off. I'm now the world's first college professor of comic books. Um but but I instantaneously knew this was a life-changing moment wow. um, in many ways for me. It proved a lot to me. It proved a lot to me about myself. And um, it uh, it just changed my course. Other people got into this class as well. Um, I, I believe uh, some camera people got in, some news camera people. Uh, oh, because, yeah. Because the word got out on this and it became... Uh, first, you know, uh, news in the area, and then, of course, national and international news that this course was happening. Um, how, Wasn't how, that a miracle? I wonder how, how did that these happened. People, yeah, like, how did these people find out about it? Like, did, did it happen from the students? Did they tell? Did, did uh, like, how, how did that, that, did you tell them? How did, how did that work out? No, I just took my mother's advice that I had to market myself in this, and I have no money. I'm in Bloomington, Indiana, which I referred to at the time as the oasis in the desert. <laughs> and um, once again, figuring I had nothing to lose, I picked up a telephone and I called United Press International. And back then, UPI was as big a news syndicate as the Associated Press is today. I asked to speak to a reporter. This poor, poor man got on the phone <laughs> and I proceeded to scream at him. I said, what is wrong with you? You're not doing your job. You're supposed to be the watchdogs of our society. This is outrageous. He said, calm down. He goes, what are you talking about? What am I talking about? Are you kidding me? I just heard there's a course on comic books being taught at Indiana University. Are you telling me as a taxpayer in this state that they're using my money to teach our children comic books? Oh, this has amazing. got to be a communist plot to subvert the youth of America, and I slammed down the phone. Wow. Um, the reporter shows up with a photographer. This interview goes out through UPI. It's a third of a page with pictures picked up by virtually every newspaper in North America, a bunch in Europe, and my phone started ringing and never, ever stopped. I was invited on radio talk shows, TV talk shows. 
I never taught one individual class that wasn't filled with television cameras, NBC Nightly News, the CBS Evening News, and reporters from every kind of magazine you could ever imagine. And um, it was incredible, the response. And you, so, were getting uh, some, and you were getting some very interesting calls from some uh, comic book folks as well, correct? Two. Again, you talk about life-changing moments. About two weeks into this, my phone rings, and it is this really exuberant male voice. He goes, hiya, Mike. This is Stan <laughs> Lee from Marvel Comics in New York City. I called it my burning bush moment because I was talking to my God. Wow. And oh, my God. Stan said, Mike, I'm watching you on TV. I'm reading about you in newspapers. What you're doing is great for the whole comic book industry. How can I help you? That's amazing. That was the day Stan Lee moved from my idol to my mentor to my friend to eventually um, somebody I worked with creatively. But that started that day. Uh, two hours later, the phone rang. It was another person from New York. This time it was Saul Harrison, vice president of DC Comics in New York City. And he said, um, the president, Carmine Infantino, and I have been listening to you on radio. We've been reading about you in magazines. Um, we think you're a very innovative young man and would like to fly you to New York City and discuss ways we might be able to work together. And bingo, I'm now working for DC Comics and geek dream come true. It was amazing. Yeah. Oh, man. Now, when, when you're 28 years old, you're over there at, uh, at DC Comics and you approached the president of DC uh, about buying the rights to Batman. Where do you get the nerve to pull something like that off? How to, how to, uh, how do you how do you pull something? How do you pull off a meeting like that? Well, this was now Saul Harrison, the president, the man who had mentored me into the comic book business, whom I had worked with very closely with at DC. He knew I was a not only a comic book fan, but a comic book historian and a comic book buff, and that I loved and respected not only the comic books and the characters, but the creators. So that's an important part to understand that when I said to him, Saul, I want to buy the rights to Batman and I want to go out and make dark and serious movies and show the whole world what the true Batman is like. And no, no, wait, no, real quick before before you say this, um, when you say that you wanted to buy the rights to Batman or what exactly were you asking for you were you asking for the the film rights or or putting him on screen like what what how do you like what, what the exactly term of art yeah yeah the term of art is motion picture television and allied and ancillary rights that's the term of art wow oh my god and, and why do you think at the time they were willing to give those rights up okay This is a story you cannot possibly conceive of without it being set in the context of the times. Because if I told you right now, as a 20-something-year-old kid, I bought the rights to Batman, you would say impossible, inconceivable. Yeah, Yeah. because it seems absolutely nuts. I said to Saul, I want to buy the rights to Batman and make dark and serious Batman movies. Um, He immediately looked like 
Macaulay Culkin's poster in Home Alone. And, and, and he was very fatherly to me. Uh, he really was. He said, Michael, for God's sake, don't do this. He said, I don't want to see you lose all your money. He said, son, don't you understand that when Batman went off the air in television, the brand became as dead as a dodo? And that's a quote. He says, Michael, nobody's interested in Batman anymore. I said, Saul, but if I make dark and serious movies, nobody's ever seen a movie like that before. It's never happened with superheroes and comic books. It'll almost be like a new form of entertainment. And he says, is there any way I can talk you out of this? And I said, no. <laughs> he said, and here's an, this is another quote. Okay, schmoozle, come on in. <laughs> and... That began a six-month negotiation, during which time uh, me and my uh, the guy I found to be my partner in this, because I kind of didn't exactly know what I was doing. I need somebody that had been through it all, who knew how to mount a production. And thank God I found uh, Ben Melnicker, who was a legend in the movie business. And on October 3rd, 1979, we signed the papers, gave him a check. I bought the rights to Batman. I put it in my back pocket, I quit my job, and prepared to go out to Hollywood and with Batman in my back pocket, thinking so naively that this was going to be a slam dunk. Every studio is going to line up my, my door. How could they not see the potential for sequels and animation and toys and games? And I was about to be blasted out of my chair with what was about to come next. More great stories with Michael Uslan from the Batcave after this break. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. So you, you, I mean, you get out there to Hollywood, you start pitching. The, this, this guy... Uh, that you had partnered with, he starts setting up meetings for you to go and, and pitch yeah. to different studios. And you get into these exactly. studios, and they are not feeling you. They're not. They're not in the. They're not on the same page. Is that is that an easy down. easy way of saying that you were were you turned down by every movie studio at the time? Everyone, but I think turned down is too gentle of phraseology here. I, I was almost booted out of offices. I was told time and time again, this is the worst idea we've ever heard. Um, wow. Are you kidding? You're crazy, kid. You can't do serious comic book movies. 
Michael, you're nuts. You can't do dark superheroes. You can't make a movie out of an old TV series. No one's ever done that before. Warner Brothers would not even let me in the room to pitch it. When we wow. went called to set up a meeting, they sent me a telex back saying, no interest in Batman, goodbye and good luck. Oh, the rejections were unbelievable. So for 10 years, you had studio executives telling you that, you know, the idea was no good, it was lousy. I mean, that's got to take a toll on you as a human being. I mean, anybody who gets rejected constantly like that, especially over 10 years, has got to question, you know, what they're doing. So what motivated you to keep going and what prevented you from giving up? Well, it does test your mettle as a human being. It does. Uh, I mean, everybody telling you you suck and your idea stinks and you have to think hard about it. Is everybody right and I'm really just being stubborn or do I really, really believe in this and in myself for that matter? And I kept coming up with the latter answer. So the question became, how do you hold on by your fingertips year after year after year? Because you know the story. It took 10 years until we were finally able to get it made. Uh, you just also brought up something else. Um, so I want to just go back for a moment and fill in one gap. We were at Columbia, and that was the very last studio we pitched to. This was it. There were no more studios. We'd been turned down everywhere. And we went in to pitch to a guy who had been around for at least 25 years. He and Ben went way back. And I pitched my heart out for my dark and serious Batman. And he said, Michael, you're nuts. Batman will never be a successful movie because our movie, Annie, didn't do well. <laughs> and what? I said, Annie and Batman are the same thing. Our movie Annie didn't do well because Annie was a comic book character. Or a, she's a superhero. She's a comic yeah. strip. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, "Oh, come on, Michael. They're both out of the funny pages." That was my rejection at Columbia. Wow, what? But he then turned to Ben and said, "Ben, you and I go back a long ways." He goes, "If you guys really want to do a Batman movie, I'll actually consider it." But it's got to be that funny pot-bellied pow-zap wham guy because that's all audiences will remember and love. Mm. And I said no. And with that, this executive sits down in front of me, leans in and says, son, better to have a movie made than no movie at all. And I looked at him and I said no. So after that meeting... We're sitting on a bench on the studio lot. I literally have my head between my legs at this point in time. It was the last studio. I'm as down in the dumps as I think maybe I've ever been. And Ben looks at me sitting there like that in a dark place. And he said, you know, Michael, it's ironic that the last no we got came from you. Wow. And he said... You know, you know what that makes you? And I said, yeah, Ben, I'm an idiot. He goes, no. He goes, you are Batman's Batman. You are protecting him. You are defending him. You have a vision for what's right for him, and you're sticking to that vision. He goes, look, so no major is going to do this. There's still alternative ways to get financing and distribution. There's foreign companies. There are these small mini-majors that are popping up. Come on. Let's redouble our efforts. Let's make this thing happen. And he snapped me out of it, and on we went. But I will never forget what he told me at that moment in time that really turned me around. 
Oh, that's amazing. That's a, that, yeah, that really is. That's incredible. How did you support yourself? Did you have a, were you able to? Did you find jobs and 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 gigs to to keep yourself working? Um, I was writing comics. I was writing books. Um, I uh, I produced my first things outside of Batman. Um, we did Swamp Thing with, for a million nine. Uh, that's a whole other story because <laughs> I went back like three months later and bought the rights to Swamp Thing from them um, because I knew Batman now was going to take a few years. Uh, I had no idea it was going to be 10. Uh, and I needed something to do really, really fast that I knew I could set up and bring some money in. I also created an animated series along the way called Dinosaucers that we wound up doing 65 half-hour episodes uh, on. And uh, I produced a miniseries for PBS American Playhouse since I was a history buff. Uh, I used my history degree. It was the true story of the Salem Witch Trials of 1692 called Three Sovereigns for Sarah, starring Vanessa Redgrave, Patrick McGowan, and Kim Hunter. Oh, my God. Wow. And that's that's amazing. And in the in terms of Batman, did you ever think about, this is taking so long, I might as well just give up? No, no, no. <laughs> um, I, I, w- I wish everybody would have had the chance to meet my mom. Uh, m- the way my mom raised Paul and me was um, certain basic things. Number one, um, family first. Number two, the most important thing you can give your kids is a great education. Number three, once you make a commitment, you stick to it. Period. End of story. That, that's so it's so incredible. And I mean, it it really shows in the work and in who you are as a human being that you've continued to thrive and and uh, and you've continued to fight for the way that that you feel, you know, this character and, and this world should be shown. Um, you know, Tim Burton has such a unique style um, did did you know how unique a style he had when you guys got into into working together? Like when when he got involved. First thing that happened was the studio calls me and said, "We have a movie. We have a fine cut. We want you to see right away. It's called Pee Wee's Big Adventure." And I go and I watch this thing, and I come back and I tell everyone, "This is incredible. This is the greatest combination of direction and art direction I've seen creatively." Uh, I would love to meet this guy. They then set up a series of three lunches for me and um, for Tim. And um, I was shocked that this young guy right out of Disney animation was not a comic book guy. I was really surprised by that. So it was my job to indoctrinate him into the world of Batman. And I knew he had it. I knew he had it. And and now I've got to be real clear with this. Um, Tim Burton we had two geniuses on that first film, Tim Burton and Anton First, my, my dear friend who was our production designer. And it is Tim who deserves all the credit because he came up with what I always call the big idea. The big idea that would make the most revolutionary first ever dark and serious comic book superhero movie actually work. The big idea that would open the floodgates to Marvel and everyone else that would follow. And the big idea was simply this. Tim said to me, Michael, if we want to make a movie showing a guy getting dressed up in a bat suit and going out and fighting a guy like the Joker 
and have audiences worldwide who have never read a comic book take this seriously, this movie cannot be about Batman. And that's when I melted into the floor. (laughs) Before I could even respond to that, he said, this movie must be about Bruce Wayne. We have to show a Bruce Wayne who is so driven, so obsessed to the point of being psychotic that audiences will suspend their disbelief and buy into this. And go, Oh, yeah, that's a guy who would go out and put on a suit like that and all of a sudden make it work. Think about it. That was the whole idea that changed the nature of what a comic book movie is and how the world culture would accept it and perceive these characters. Look at all the Marvel movies. In, yeah. in theory, they're called Iron Man, but they really should be called Tony Stark. Right. You're so right about that. They're called, they're called Spider-Man, but in reality, audiences can't wait till we get back to the Peter Parker stuff. Right. Well, that grounds That's the movies, the big too. idea. You know, that grounds the movies and the characters, so the audience obviously has something to relate to rather than, you know, some guy dressing up in a suit, you know, every single night. Yeah. Um, and my, my question to you is, you've waited 10 years, you, you have a director attached that you like who has a great vision, um, and then you get into casting, and the casting of, I remember this because the casting of Michael Keaton at the time was very divisive among people and fans. Um, so oh, yeah. after 10 years, he, trying he, to get a, he a was film like greenlit. A, he was a comedy guy. Yeah. Like everyone was just like, oh, this is a stand, what the hell is a stand-up comedian going to do? Right. So you know? Yeah, so after 10 years of trying to get this film greenlit, and pe- people start to freak out about the casting. So how did you feel about that? When they, I got a call from the executive that we worked with at the studio. He goes, Michael, so what do you think of Tim's new idea, Michael Keaton, to play Batman? And I said, very funny. I love the idea, Mr. Mom is Batman. And it took 20 minutes before he could convince me this was not a joke on me, that this was real. And I was at this moment in time, like seven seven and a half years into this quest for a dark and serious Batman. Uh, My heart stopped. I was apoplectic. Um, So I had to go talk to Tim. And that's when we had this incredible discussion. And I said, Tim, for God's sake, he's a comedian. He's my height. He's got a receding hairline. He doesn't have the muscles. And, And for God's sake, he doesn't have the square jaw of Batman. And Tim said, Michael, going from one medium to another medium, a square jaw does not a Batman make. He said, "Wow, I can cheat height. I can carve musculature into a costume. I can uh, dress up somebody's hair. He said, but it's all about Bruce Wayne and having somebody who could convince him. And he says, and Michael Keaton is a great serious actor. And to prove it to me, they then quickly set up a screening of the rough cut of a film called Clean and Sober. And oh, I came movie, out of yeah. that. Yeah. And I said, OK, I take it all back. I hadn't seen this. He, the, the world doesn't know about this movie yet and what Keaton's capable of doing. I take it all back. And they and Tim said, if if you guys all force me to use a quote unquote serious actor, he goes, I do not know how to show any of them getting into a bat suit without getting unintentional laughs from the audience. But having done Beetlejuice with Michael Keaton, I know we can convince him this is a guy who just absolutely would do this. And he was absolutely right, and he proved it. 
Well, that's amazing. Uh, you know, Tim directed two very successful Batman movies that were well-received. Um, and then when it came time to make the, uh, a third movie, he decided to step away, uh, as did Michael Keaton. They both decided at the time, like, Tim was going to step away. And I believe, if I recall correctly, Michael Keaton didn't want to do it without Tim, so he left. So after two successful movies, your, your star and your director step away. How did you feel about that, and, you know, where was your head at? Well, the best way I can answer this is speaking generally about the motion picture industry rather than specifically about Batman. So sometimes, generally speaking, in the motion picture industry, there are those who become more focused on toys and games and merchandising as opposed to simply films. And as I tell my students every year, you know, I teach for three weeks every year. I teach two courses on the business of producing motion pictures at Indiana University's media school. And I open up every class and I say there are 10 rules for making a successful motion picture. Number one, story. Number two, story. Three story, four story, five story, <laughs> six story, seven character, eight character, nine character, 10 story. And... um so why go out to try to make two-hour infomercials for toys when instead if you can find a filmmaker as, as has been found over the years in the likes of other geniuses like Christopher Nolan and Todd Phillips uh, who have a, a specific bold and daring vision – and you know that they have a knowledge of a character, they have a love for a character, a passion for a character, and you believe can execute that vision, why not have a filmmaker go out and just make a great movie and maybe you'll, you'll sell toys anyway? Um, so generally in the motion picture industry, um, that's when I think all sorts of genres or films become the most effective and the other situations, I think, are when the bottom starts to really fall out and, and the focus, the lack of focus yeah, no, no, on no. story, character and film gets lost in the shuffle. It makes it makes a lot of sense. I mean, you know, like when a studio knows that they have something that was a big financial win for them. Uh, a, a lot of times they will do absolutely everything they can to squeeze every last bit of of of, of juice out of it and I'm not to you know uh, crap on Joel Schumacher but you know uh, that the this <laughs> between Batman Forever and in Batman and Robin you know with with uh like the 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 Mr. Freeze and all his ridiculous dialogue and and Jim Carrey and and then you know and and you know even into like Catwoman with Halle Berry these are these are dark times after some big high times in your life I know that you worked on other stuff during that time like Constantine you produced National Treasure and TV uh, animated stuff how, but there, that's a dark period, yeah. I'm, I'm sure, for you. How did you get through that time? And especially, you know, after you had made your vow to return Batman to his dark roots, it seems like once those Schumacher movies came out, it sort of went back to the campy, you know, Batman 66. So just kind of adding on to Stephen's question. When I was at my lowest and darkest, who do you think bailed me out? It was Ben. 
And Ben said, Michael, um, when things get bad and everything's at its lowest, that is the moment you say the following. This is the greatest thing that could have happened to me because. And then you fill in the blank. So he said to me this one day, um, come on, let's hear it. So I went through this exercise with him. I said, okay, this is the greatest thing that could have happened to me because somebody's going to get bit on the butt by this. And as a result of that, I'm going to get what I want the next time, bigger and better. And Ben said, there you go. That's the way you think. That's the way you hold on to hope. And in retrospect now, gentlemen, had there not been a Batman and Robin and a Catwoman, um, we may never have gotten Christopher Nolan. Yeah, right. And the Dark Knight trilogy. Because with Christopher Nolan, you get... You basically got a person doing for the films what you had set out to do in in the beginning. Yeah, God bless the new management that came in. They were willing to give the keys to their most lucrative, important franchise to a young, independent, genius filmmaker. That's an incredible thing to happen at a studio. Yeah. Incredible. Oh my! God. And it was Chris who restored the darkness and dignity to Batman. It, it is Chris who deserves all the credit. And my my summation statement is when you walk out of a Christopher Nolan Batman movie for the first time in the history of comic book films, um, you no longer have to say, gee, that was a great comic book movie. You can now say that was a great film. Yeah. Lifted the whole thing up. Yeah, those those films are, are incredible, and I, I love each and every one of those films. Now, just wait, to ask wait, you, hang on, I got I got one quick one, small quick question, but I have to ask you, Michael, um, of all the bat, because you've done a ton of Batman animated series, is there kind of like a favorite voice for Batman that that you've uh, you've worked with? Are you talking about across animated voice, and live action? Just for movies? voiceover actors in general, like you've had some really incredible well, people Kevin. play him. Yeah, Kevin Conroy. Kevin Conroy, man, so incredible. Yeah, oh, and, and let's go. Let's just go one step further. Uh, as I recently told my friend Mark Hamill, I said, Mark, if anyone is ever going to be building a Mount Rushmore to the Joker, there are going to be four heads carved in that, and it's going to be Nicholson, Ledger, Phoenix, and you. Yeah. Which leads me to a question that your uh, that your son told me to ask you: Is it true that you came up with the idea as Jack Nicholson? For the Joker in, in Batman 89. You want that story? Yeah. Please. May 1980, Memorial Weekend. I'm on a bus leaving New York City, heading home for the holiday. I get the afternoon paper. I open it up to the movie section. Two big movies are opening up for the holidays. One is called The Empire Strikes Back. Do you ever hear that one? Never heard of it. <laughs> uh, it, it, it was good. You should check it out. It, maybe you can find it on Netflix. It was like a small um, independent The other movie, one right? small comedy. was a, hor- a horror film called The Shining. And as I turn the page, there is this picture of Jack Nicholson peering around a doorway looking absolutely maniacal. And this has become a very iconic picture. It's called the Here's Johnny shot. Yep. I took one look at this. I said, my God, this is the only actor who could play the Joker. I tore the picture out of the newspaper. As soon as I got home, I raced to my desk. I took white out. 
and I whited out Jack's face. <laughs> I took a red magic marker. I did his lips. I took a magic marker and did his hair. And I showed that to everyone at the studio, to Tim, to everybody, as to why Jack Nicholson was the only actor who could play the Joker. And in my uh, memoir, The Boy Who Loved Batman, uh, I actually – I save everything and I reprint that picture. And it's pretty stunning to look at it as a model for um, what would become the eternal um, cinematic version of Joker. That's 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 amazing. Oh, Did wow. he uh, – did he have to be coaxed into it or was he pretty uh, excited to do it? Well, he had to be coaxed into it by Tim. But once he got to know Tim, he was on board a thousand percent. That's awesome. And, uh, you know, the Joker, how did that come about? First of all, Todd Phillips is another genius. I have now worked in my 44 years in the business. There are eight people I consider now geniuses whom I've been involved with projects. And with Joaquin Phoenix, whom I believe has given us the performance of a lifetime. And then they bring in one department head after another, cinematographer, editor, composer. The list goes on and on. They brought their best game to the table. They brought artistry. They, they master their craft and show it all because of how they've been inspired by Todd and Joaquin. And that's an amazing, uh, amazing thing to see happen. I believe that Joker is the most important movie dealing with mental health issues since one flew over the cuckoo's nest. And that, to me, is incredible. I think it's a well, masterpiece. I think it's, in, I think it's disturbing. I think it is uncomfortable. But it's a brilliant, brilliant film with a brilliant performance by Joaquin Phoenix. Um, what's next for Batman? Matt Reeves has a vision, a knowledge, an understanding a love, a passion, and he's executing, I couldn't be more excited about the next Batman solo movie that's shooting now. I think it's going to so be amazing. That's, that's Robert what Pattinson, I'm going to say. Big, uh, big talent there. Okay, last question. Since you are the living example of never surrendering, uh, do you have any advice for our listeners that may be struggling personally or professionally? Yeah, I think I do. And it's the same thing I tell my students, uh, really and truly. Um, and it depends on where you are in life. Let's start, if, if you're somebody 40 and up and things are not going quite so well, um, there are changes at your company that have you scared and thought of going into a job market at age 40 or 50 or whatever, um, every once in a while, we all have to force ourselves out of our comfort zones. We have to. And we have to reinvent ourselves. And the, and the perfect example of that is Batman. You've all seen it. You've seen him be reinvented in the comic books. You've seen him reinvented in the media, whether he's the pow zap wham potbelly guy, the dark guy, um, the Lego Batman. There's now 53 different interpretations of Batman. And as a result, 80 years later, he's more popular than he ever was. And we have to take that to heart as, as individuals in the real world. For people who are younger, my message is very simple and clear. And it's based on the fact that what I'm about to tell you, I did it. A kid with no money and no contacts and no relatives in the right places. And it starts with passion. Take the time and explore. Try to learn what your passions are. 
if you're young enough, if you're still in college or just a few years out, you can't make a wrong decision. It's just as important to learn what you don't like as what you do like. When you find the passion, get up off the damn couch. Second part, I'm always asked in Q&A, what about the magic of good timing and good luck? And I said, well, what this is all really about when you stop and think about it is what you've got to knock on doors. You've got to knock on doors until your knuckles bleed. And you go back and you knock again and you knock again. And I promise you, I promise everyone who's not a trust baby who's in college, when you get out into the real world, doors are going to slam in your face. Guarantee it. And I learned when they do that, you only have two choices. You either go home and cry about it or you pick yourself up, dust yourself off, and then go back and knock again and again and knock again. This Batman movie franchise was built on my bloody knuckles. And if you keep going back and knocking again and again, guess what? At some point in time, you'll knock on the right door at the right time. There's magic. There's your good luck, quote unquote, and there's your good timing. Wow. Well, Michael, I, as a fan, I want to tell you, thank you for knocking. Thank you for continuing <laughs> to knock. And thank you so much for getting off of the couch and chatting with us today. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you, buddy. Talk to you real soon. Thanks, guys. I always love talking to you. And uh, anytime, maybe, uh, maybe when the next Batman film opens up, we'll do this again. Never Surrender is produced by Western Sound. Executive producers are Jack Hergoth, Stephen Kramer Glickman, and Ben Adair. Producers are Sabrina Fang and Cameron Kell. Music by Hannes Brown. On social media, you can check us out on Instagram at NeverSurrenderPod, on Twitter at SurrenderPod, and on Facebook at NeverSurrenderPodcast. You can also email us at NeverSurrenderPodcast at gmail.com to share your own stories about how you struggled, failed, and ultimately never surrendered. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. 